we live in an era where at the top of a button, you can have a car outside within three minutes. It doesn't make sense for it to take 40, 50 minutes just to get an interpreter. And welcome to Slitterpod, everyone. Joining us today is Virpal Singh, CEO and founder of Digital Talk, uh, a language and specifically interpreting services provider uh, that enables matching of thousands of interpreters for across a large range of languages. Hi, Virpal. Hi. Hi, Varen. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. Where does this podcast find you today? What country, what city? We are in Stockholm, Sweden. Stockholm, Sweden. It's probably nighttime there already, right? Well, it's getting dark. <laughs> it's getting dark at 5 p.m. Oh, my God. Winter's coming. Tell us a bit about your professional background. Quite unusual in the language industry. So you went from studying electronics, computer engineering, uh, to founding a company in the language industry. Tell us more. The thing is, I was very interesting. As, as a young kid, I was very interested in electronics, machines, computers, and everything that had to do with technology. And as I grew up, I found that in, in school, I was getting a bigger interest in biology, chemistry, medicine. So I did my engineering as a subspecialty of computer engineering and electronics into medical engineering. Uh, and, and that's where I kind of feel at home as well. Uh, now, so my first job was actually as a medical engineer in Ethiopia, uh, sent out uh, through the Swedish government. But eventually when I came back, I found a passion in uh, project management and kind of gently got my way into IT project management and managing, you know, uh, building of apps, web apps, platforms, setting up redundant, you know, applications for banks and stuff like that. And then it was in the middle of the refugee wave in 2015 that my eyes uh, or that my attention was caught in, in the language industry. And it was actually not intentional. It, were, it was rather by accident where I saw, you know, a huge influx of individuals not speaking Swedish coming into Sweden, uh, seeking refuge, fleeing war and, and misery. And I saw that this matching of language need um, and the supply was not working. And I very, you know, I saw a very cumbersome and manual flow. You know, you've got a patient coming into the clinic who doesn't speak Swedish. Uh, they'll call, you know, the clinic will call an interpretation agency, wait in a queue 15, 20 minutes just to communicate the need of the language. Interpretation agency then calls a bunch of interpreters to see who's available. Interpreter number seven says, yep, yeah, I'm available. That takes another 15, 20 minutes. And then you call back and, and give the clinician the phone number to the, to the interpreter. That matching took 30, 40, 50 minutes. And, and especially during the height of refugee wave, when the, the demand was so high, there were a lot of contexts where the interpretation agency would call back and say, sorry, no can do. Uh, we don't have anyone available. And at the same time, so I saw this manual cumbersome flow and I thought to myself, we live in an era where at the top of a button, you can have an interpreter, a, a car outside within three minutes. It doesn't make sense for it to take 40, 50 minutes just to get an interpreter. And these are highly qualified people, clinical staff, doctors, nurses. You know, on the other side, you've got, you know, lawyers who should be spending time on billable activities. You know, a lot of these qualified people spending a lot of time on administration, which I saw shouldn't be necessary. And that's kind of, because I started talking, I'm a very curious person. Wherever I see that, you know, there's something that's out of the, you know, ordinary. I'm wondering why is this the case? 
And my curiosity kind of makes me dig into things deeper. And that's kind of how I got into it. And I thought this could be make, made a lot more efficient. And there is a sustainable model for this as well. Let's do something and, and see if we can do make an improvement here. And especially because we also saw a big, uh, big challenge in the interpreter side as well, where they were, you know, walking around with these manual papers and sheets to, to fill in after the session is done to get the reimbursement and payment. And I thought there's so much administration going on and, and this is something that we can eliminate, make it easier for interpreters as well. So it was, it was actually rather a coincidence or an accident that I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And that came as an effect of me uh, after work, after working at the bank, going into the Stockholm Central Station to volunteer, you know, seeing a lot of these people coming in. And this was also this time when this young boy, Alan Kurdi, uh, flowed up the Mediterranean and, and his body was on the beach and people really engaged. People cared about the cause and wanted to help out. And um, so, so, you know, these comments on Facebook, I've got a cottage place for four. I've got an extra bedroom place for, for two. People wanted to host refugees coming in. You know, you've got, you know, somebody at the Stockholm Central Station is coordinating that. Somebody's, uh, you know, done a fundraiser for clothes. Because a lot of these refugees were, you know, barefooted or the police in Hungary ripped off their jackets and stuff. And so somebody's doing that. And I was there after work making sandwiches. Uh, and in this kind of ocean of people, somebody stands up on a chair and yells, hey, does anyone speak Arabic? Hey, does anyone speak Persian? And I thought to myself, there has to be a better way. And that's kind of where one thing led to another, where I saw this challenge, started diving deeper into it. And saw that this is something that we can solve. And that's kind of where the, this is the kind of the Genesis story where, where we feel very um, proud and humble to, to make a service that makes a big difference for a lot of people. Both on, on the interpreter side, a lot of the interpreters that we're working with as well were refugees five, six years ago. And it's their step into, you know, the established working life. And, and on the other side, we're helping a lot of crime victims, a lot of patients get access to quality care. Did you, like from that, like you saw the problem in the real world and then you were like, well, okay, so let me just kind of go and code for six months and then come out with a fully fleshed product? Or did you kind of have like a an MVP, minimal viable product super quickly and then started testing it with the people that, that needed it or... So that's exactly how it works. And, and, and that was kind of the time of, you know, the lean startup kind of way as well. I wouldn't say that we went, so this is actually quite interesting as, as, you know, the MVPs work. So we, we got an MVP done and then all of a sudden, so I wasn't coding myself. I was out there volunteering and the kind of spending my time understanding the needs. And at the same time, I, I contracted somebody to build the first MVP and, you know, as always, Things went over time and 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 whatnot, and then all of a sudden we, you know, they started changing the terms, and I'm like, I felt really let down at that point, that you know we're here to launch something that does a difference, and you're now changing the terms. I I can't agree with that, and it doesn't feel good in how I want to ethically, you know, run a, run something. So I, at the very last moment, had to change and redo everything from scratch. And then already then we had bypassed the timelines that we had thought uh, and and we had to get in another team to do it. And within two, three weeks, we had something that, that and a new MVP. So in hindsight, it was still good, 
but there was a lot of bumps on the way to get that MVP in place. And then the client was mostly government agencies right off the bat or what, what type of people would be using it? So initially our first users were NGOs who were getting the book volunteers. So we made it a double system where NGOs could book volunteers and paying customers and government entities would get trained on certified interpreters. So that way we, we built kind of a dual system for that. Uh, but our first paying customers were refugee homes. So where, you know, a lot of these refugees would get accommodation and the government were hosting them through uh, private companies. So they were our first customers. Interesting. So t tell me a bit more about kind of this, how like Swedish legislation kind of affects demand for that. Because what you described was like literally an emergency, right? I mean, so it was very obvious that people needed that type of service. But what, what's kind of the legislative kind of background to, uh, to the demand in, in Sweden particularly? So fundamentally, you've got underlying everything is the EU right, you know, a right to fair trial. That, that's obviously one of the fundamental aspects in terms of the justice system. That extends to, to the refugees as well, I believe. But then on the other hand, you've got a fundamental right as, as somebody in Sweden that, in a, that communication with the government or with public entities should be done or carried out in a way where you know, the recipient is understanding and is able to communicate with, with these public entities. And that's kind of the underlying um, uh, you know, um, uh, legal kind of requirements that are underlying the language services in general, but but that obviously primarily extends to public entities. But then you've got private companies as well, which in their operations or in their needs. So in this case, this refugee home, they needed to have discussions with these. So it was a refugee. Um, home for 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 lone children who had fled to Sweden. So they needed to communicate with their children about what their needs are, you know, what the rules and regulation of the refugee homes are, as things like that. So I don't think they, that those specific operations were um, um, in any way kind of covered by the government. But was the government paying for the the running of the refugee home? Sure, they were. And so in one way, there was kind of a reimbursement model, but that was for running the entire operations, not for the interpretations themselves. Like you, you mentioned Europe, but also then we zoomed into Sweden. And I, I just want to run something by that we think here at Slater, that like the interpreting market is kind of segregated between Europe and the US, kind of broadly speaking. And then even within Europe, it's, I'm not sure what the right term is, like insular or very kind of specifically country focused also on the provider side. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? And like, would you also like, yeah, would you agree with that assessment generally? Is that how you're seeing it? So in general, I would say that's, that's accurate. I mean, there is a different um, legislative aspect in every market, which, which even though it's slightly different and not necessarily, you know, completely different, but there are these slight nuances which are important for providers to kind of be aware of. Now, with that said, because none of the providers in Europe are of that magnitude where they've kind of completely hit through in multiple markets, I think that becomes a challenge for a lot of the European providers as well. Yeah, because sometimes I like wonder why there isn't like a pan-European remote interpreting provider like there is in the US, right? In the US, it's obviously, it's much more kind of uh, uh, 
unified market generally, but like, is it that hard to scale across Europe? Like rolling it out in, you know, whatever, Spain, France, Germany, and the rest? Until you've got the resources, yes, it is. Uh, and then, so that's one aspect. And the, well, that's kind of the fundamental aspect. And I'll come back to that eventually. But the US has another very big advantage, which is, you know, the unifying of, uh, aspect in the language as well. You know, you've got in, in the US, you, you've primarily got English to 210 languages. While in the European markets, you've got to have Swedish to 230 languages, Danish to 230 languages, uh, you know, French to 230 languages. Now, from what, I, from what I'm aware, there is nobody who's managed to hit that through in, in all of this, these markets. So that's obviously one thing. And the second thing is the adjustment in the platform, in the operational ability as well. That requires a lot more capital than just opening up a branch in another state, which still has the same language needs. Because essentially, in theory at least, a provider in California can provide services for, for a customer in Delaware or in New York given that it's carried out remotely because it's still English to the, the other language. And that makes a huge difference. Got it. Now that, that's very interesting that you're mentioning that kind of the su supply side in a sense is a constraining factor there as well. Uh, so in, in, in Digitalk's case, what's your, what kind of, what are your key languages? Is it still mostly Arabic, I guess, from the 2015 uh, time or like uh, what's currently uh, very much in demand and how do you plan for this build it up? Um, because I saw on your website, by the way, you had like an emergency booking, for example. So that must be super challenging, kind of booking that, uh, that like on a super constrained timeline. But yeah, how do you manage and what's your core language profile? Well, you're absolutely right. And this is actually not specifically related to the refugee wave. I would say the refugee wave was what brought my attention to the challenge in the industry. But, but that need, underlying need, was there significantly before as well. Because before, before the, this refugee wave, well, then there was the war in Iraq and stuff like that. So you've got, you know, and this statistically has been the same the last more or less 15 years, where the top, for us, the top language is Arabic. It accounts for 50% of all of our bookings. Somali, Tigrinya, Persian, and Dari. These top five languages account for roughly 85 to 90% of all of our bookings. I wrote 225 languages account for 15% of our bookings. Um, and, that, and that kind of puts things into perspective. We see a fairly similar, so we, we've entered the day, we, we've kind of had our imprint outside of Sweden through a, a customer in the government entity in Denmark as well. We see a fairly similar pattern there as well. And and obviously, what's happening in the world has a has a huge impact as well. So, uh, the war in in Ukraine is, is obviously having an impact as well, where that's been a, a language on the rise in Scandinavia in general. Absolutely, it's same here. It's I think it's still still a bigger uh, a big challenge actually to get the to get that done. Um, in terms of the technical challenges, though, I've, you know, it's obviously it's 2022. We've been through the pandemic. People are really used to video calls. But like, what are you seeing on the video interpreting side are still like, what are the solved challenges you kind of did solve over the past 18 to 24 months? And what are some of the maybe unsolved things in terms of the, uh, the, the actual call at the patching in and things like that, the technical side? So something we were very early on, and this goes back to 
the time of Skype for Business when it was still very jittery kind of getting in. How do you kind of get connected? And it takes 10, 15 minutes just to get connected. So something we were very early on doing is piloting with one of our current customers now in video uh, interpretations. And we implemented our own WebRTC framework uh, for for a video. Uh, you, you know, click a button and you're in the room. You don't need to worry about anything. Just click a button and you're in. And we were the first ones to build that into the mobile app as well to kind of make a very simple user experience to to connect in. And, and that was obviously very helpful in the pandemic as well, that we were completely prepared for that transition. What we're seeing, though, the bigger challenge here is actually more on finding the right and appropriate use case. The customer that we piloted with was a, um, uh, was a clinic in air, nose, throat where over the phone interpretation was more of a challenge because of the nature of the patients that they would have. So they were piloting and, and they were trying to pilot with 10 different suppliers that they had an agreement with. We weren't even a player that they had a contract with at that point. So I remember they called us, they emailed us on a Monday. On a Tuesday, we had a first meeting with them. And on the subsequent Monday, they had a first video session with us. So where they'd been working like for months trying to get somebody to onboard, we were we were helping them within a week. And and so that's something we're very proud of helping customers transition. And I think the big challenge here is that most customers haven't found their ideal use case for using it. Because in terms of percentage, video or a VRI is still a very, very small part of our bookings. Uh, most customers are still very comfortable using over the phone or or default to the physical kind of interface or face-to-face -face interpretation, which they've always been using. So kind of getting that or justifying using uh, the video has been a bit of a challenge. This is something that we're, you know, it's a, it's a challenge that we're enjoying working on. And we're actually working with one of the customers now which has seen an unprecedented use of video bookings. So we're seeing that transition and working actively with the customers, but it is about helping the customer identify what is the ideal use case for using video over, over the phone. That's interesting, just so people understand. So, I mean, you obviously the video is the one where kind of that's almost like what you're known for maybe outside of Sweden, but you have a very powerful booking platform as well, right? Where people can go in and like book interpreters that actually are then going to go physically on site and interpret or through, uh, yeah, voice as well, just OPI, right? Got it. Okay. Um, are, are there any challenges there on the booking side, technical? I mean, it's, uh, you know, this is, I, I'm only familiar with it on the translation side, of course, it's always super hard to find the right person at the right time, right? I mean, so just describe some of the challenges that you're facing there. I mean, again, I'm, I'm just looking at your, that emergency booking button there. And I just, uh, I can only imagine how hard it is to, uh, to kind of match supply and demand there. This is something obviously that we've been refining over the last seven to eight years. Uh, and, and, you know, we've had all types of challenges, both with matching the supply and demand, you know, getting a stable platform that in itself has been a challenge in itself, making sure that the apps are stable, backend is stable, you know, making a beautiful UI and UX, which make the customer want to use our platform rather than picking up the phone and call us. You know, we've had challenges on all fronts and and, and obviously we've, we've invested an unparalleled amount of resources into making sure that we have the state of the art on all of those sides. 
And and it is it is a, one of the biggest pains that customers have been talking about. You know, getting somebody on a short notice is a huge challenge, and that's what we've we've been listening to. And and you know, the emergency aspect is just one of the aspects that we've been working with. You know, all of the other things that the customers have had issues with with incumbents. You know, we've been refining, be that with, you know, making complaints about an interpreter. That takes too long. It's it's cumbersome for us to, you know, fill in these four-page reports or call in and wait in a queue. Uh, you know, just one of those things of being able to complain. Because again, one of, one of the things that me and Leila have it share in common, so Leila is my co-founder and, and something that we find incredibly important is that sense of of level of service to provide to the customers. It's it's one thing that we provide phenomenal service tools, but when the customer does approach us, then our service has to be unpar- unparalleled as well, not just our technical side. Now, what that what does that mean? Because if you truly say that every opportunity to talk to the customers is an opportunity to serve them. From digital talk side, the way we work is we see that the customer chooses to come to us. It's a privilege that they give us to allow us to serve them. The customer could choose to go to anyone, but they choose to come to us. And that's a privilege that we cannot take for granted. And 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 a privilege that we must, you know, and, and that's how does that reflect our way of working? Well, that, that way that reflects in when our customer calls us. They shouldn't need to wait. Need to wait more than twenty seconds. Even though we've got the best technical tools, and we ideally want them to use our technical tools when they call us, they should never need to wait more than twenty seconds. I was actually testing this yesterday. I was onboarding somebody, and they're like, "I don't believe you." And and then during the onboarding, I I just you know pulled out the phone, made a call to to our customer service. Eleven seconds on the first try. Oh. They could see that it was your number. That's probably why. So we redid it. Four seconds. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure for the customer service rep who picks up the phone. But okay. Going back to the complaints as well. You know, we were looking at how does the flow work when a customer is unhappy with the service that they've been getting. You know, and and what what the common sense of doing it was call in, wait twenty minutes, add to make that complaint as well, or. You know, fill in this four-page report, which every doctor has time to fill in or not. Uh, you know, how do you make that much simpler? So now, we, you know, one of the things that we did fairly, fairly early was build a super easy interface within a few clicks to submit a complaint. Because again, that's a way for us to improve and improve our service, work with interpreters, training them as well. Uh, and and the, that kind of illustrates that we can never stop being on our toes in how we serve our customers. And that kind of reflects every part of the organizations, whether, whether it's about how we onboard and recruit interpreters or whether it's how we pick up the call from our customers with a smile or whether it's how our web app and our platform is, is, is created and, and shaped. Now, building a business like yours and scaling it that fast and being so responsive to clients takes a fair amount of capital. So have you taken on any outside investment? Have you done any acquisitions or has it been like fully bootstrapped so far? So far, we've been fully bootstrapped. We haven't raised any round. Uh, we, we've been, yeah, we've been growing organically and with 
with the confidence of our customers. And we're very humbled by that customer, you know, how customers have been our, you know, biggest ambassadors as well out there. And, and so, so we've, yeah, we've been bootstrapped. Wow. Any plans to go into any, like we spoke about the Europe uh, and maybe US, but any plans to go beyond uh, this, maybe the Nordic market or where do you see some of the challenges there? The world is our oyster. We've just started and, and we've got a lot of good plans ahead. And uh, as, as one of my colleagues adds in a very cheesy manner, the best is yet to come. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, we know that quote. Uh, so one thing that we um, kind of track here is sometimes when the big tech companies release new products, right, on the translation side, we recently had Google uh, launching yet another like translation hub. Let's see where that goes. But Microsoft uh, had a big announcement about four or five weeks ago where they added the interpreting feature for Teams. Like, what's your take on like these big tech companies rolling out, you know, relatively unsophisticated Features, yes, but to a, look a billion dollar user base, like how do you see that as um, kind of a complement, but maybe also a bit of a comp com competitor? The use case that we're seeing right now. So this is something that obviously we're we're staying very much on top of. We built our own kind of proof of concept in that as well, and and obviously building on top of other giants. So so I wouldn't be saying that we are building something from scratch. What we have been doing is finding ways to refine these rather, at this point, the way that you phrased it, a bit less sophisticated ones. How can you bring up that quality? So that's obviously one thing that we're on top of things ourselves. But, but more importantly, what we're seeing that it's doing is it's bringing in language services in the context where it would generally not be used today. You know, you know, a patient who needs a toothbrush or something like that at the night, you know, that's a context there where you wouldn't be using interpreters either way. So we're seeing that that the way that these services are coming in or creeping in are in context that you wouldn't be using interpreters either way. And I think that there is still a, a distance to go. And and obviously, I've been following the 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 development of of the AI space and languages. I remember that Satya Nadella made an announcement uh, in 2014 uh, specifically about this. And at that time, it was about Skype for the consumer. You know, you've got Chinese and you've got English. You know, people are speaking different languages. Now it's working. And I think that there is still, you know, that was about eight years ago. There's still a bit distance to go when it comes to the bigger languages where interpretation is used as well. Be, you know, Arabic, there is significantly less uh, R&D done, you know, especially when it comes to colloquial Arabic and, and the other language, some of them, they don't even have voice to voice support for at all. Um, you know, Tigrinya, I think they've just got it text to text. They don't have voice support for that. So the major refugee languages are very less researched, while some language combinations like English to Spanish are very, you know, they're phenomenal at this point. And, and these use cases will kind of determine, and especially because the scenarios where interpretations are used are generally fairly, fairly critical, which means that, you know, it's a question about, is it the right diagnosis or is it not? You know, are you being sentenced for something or are you not? Uh, you know, and, and the support that you're able to get as a crime victim. So these, these things, we feel that the criticality level is still a little bit 
too high for the AIs to work, even in the general, the better languages and or better, better supported languages. And a lot of the major languages are not yet supported properly. So there is still a stress to go. And we're following that development ourselves. And, and uh, yeah. I think it'll be interesting for you to, I mean, there's been, I, I hate to use the term breakthroughs, right? But there's been a lot of um, new speech to speech and speech generally technologies being launched over the past few months. And it, I mean, you have such an incredible access to like demand there, right? So I think it'll be interesting to see how you guys. Um, build on these latest advances in the next 12 to 18 months. I think it's um, there, there's a lot happening, but I agree with you that for a lot of the use cases that, that you currently service, uh, I wouldn't want to trust it to a, an AI yet. The thing is what we're seeing, uh, just like you mentioned, and I think it's easy to let yourself get fooled by how good things are in English. And and I and and I was reading a research article where Microsoft is reaching somewhere, you know, above ninety five percent when it comes to speech to text in English, and and so you've got because obviously all AI translation in oral is essentially speech to text, text to text translation, text to speech. But one of the major challenges, especially with interpretation, given that it's speech, is that the speech to text aspect. You know, while that works fairly well today in the dictation, we were talking about this before as well. It works fairly well in English, and especially if you've got a clear accent of English. But as soon as you deviate from the clear accent, you see that the quality isn't that great yet in, in you know, if you've got a different dialect. or And I would say that the accuracy in Swedish is less. Punjabi is even less. So the way that we're seeing is that the less the research, uh, the amount of research and development that has been done. Now, already there, if you've got failures on the speech to text, now Arabic, for example, with classic Arabic or modern standard, you can see that it's fairly good speech to text. But as soon as you bring a colloquial, you know, how does a Syrian actually speak? How does a Moroccan actually speak? There, you see a very large amount of failure in the speech to text. And if the speech to text is wrong, if the text is wrong, well, obviously the translation will be wrong as well. So I think there is, you know, with the interpretation, there is that added layer of complexity, which you don't have with text-to-text -text translation because you don't have that, you know, dictation and, and transcription aspect at all. So what are some of your key initiatives and projects that you're working on right now, as far as you can disclose, maybe in the next year or two, what are you working on? We're obviously very, very excited about uh, international growth. That's obviously something that we're, we're incredibly excited about. Um, and then we've got a few other exciting projects about how we can cross-sell and, and increase different types of services. So another initiative which we find very interesting is, you know, you've got in the healthcare here, uh, and this is a project that we're very excited about, is, you know, when patients don't come to the uh, time that they're booked in in the clinic that aspect of you know the doctors cost the nurses the equipment and everything that's costing sweden billions of dollars uh, you know in in societal costs and what we're seeing is that the healthcare is now sending out reminders in swedish to patients hey you've got an appointment in two days at this this clinic at that time the the demography that is overrepresented in patients not popping up is the non-Swedish-speaking non demography. 
Because there is no easy way to understanding what that text says. There is no easy way of canceling, calling in and saying, I won't be coming. And that's something that, yet how can we help our customers in, for example, when they're making the booking, we know they're booking Arabic, time, place. So we've got all of the details. And, and something that we're looking at launching is where the customer can input the phone number to the patient. And our system will then be sending out a text in Arabic or Urdu or whatever language it could be saying that, hey, you've got a booking at this point in, uh, in uh, this clinic at that time in Arabic. Click a button to cancel your appointment. Now, by doing that type of thing, we're saving society a lot of money. Is it, and and to, to be fair, today when the patient doesn't pop up, digital talk makes money on that. When the patient go, doesn't go, um, it's costing the society a lot of money. We're making money on that. But that's not the type of money that we want to make because we feel that that's a complete wastage of our collective money or societal money. So that's why we launched this service. And, and obviously, when, we launched, when, we, when we're piloting this, we're seeing that this is probably going to reduce our turnover somewhat and our top line. But it's still the right thing to do. So this is something that we're very passionate about, that how can we help our customers and save them cost by doing things which are the right thing which are within our power to do because we didn't create digital talk initially to make the maximum amount of money and, you know, get out that every last dollar or every last cent. That's not why we started the company. And, and by doing things that give value to our customers and society, we believe long-term that's the right way to go about. Yeah. I was just going to say long-term. I mean, typically the clients appreciate this and, uh, you know, it does, does help. Uh, grow sustainably like you guys have done having bootstrapped this company now and you know uh, having been super successful over the past five six seven years awesome well Virpal, that was very very interesting thanks so much for taking the time today thank you for having me